Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Today's episode is a little bit different. I am talking to technology critic Sarah M. Watson. Last month, Sarah published this great piece for the Columbia Journalism Review called Toward a Constructive Technology Criticism, which is an in-depth look at the state of technology criticism, and it's very similar to what I'm doing and thinking about with this podcast. The entire piece is excellent, and I encourage you to read it. There's a link in the show notes. And I think you'll find that a lot of the issues Sarah articulates regarding technology criticism are the same issues facing design criticism. So last week I talked to Sarah, who is currently based in Singapore, over Skype to talk about her piece and the state of criticism in the largest sense. And because we recorded a week after the election, we have what I think is a very interesting conversation about the role of criticism, especially around technology and design in this sort of Uh, post-Trump era. I think this is a timely and very relevant conversation and one that I found incredibly interesting and important. Uh, So because I've been thinking about it so much since we recorded, I decided to push it up in the schedule and release it this week. So without any more delay, here's my conversation with Sarah M. Watson. You know, like I said, you're kind of the first non-design person or somebody who's a little bit farther removed from the design industry compared to the other people that I talked to. And so I thought I kind of wanted to start with just like, you know, when you're at a dinner party or something and somebody asks what you do, how do you, what do you say? <laughs> like, how do you say what you do? Sure. Uh, I mean, that's a really good question to start with because, uh, I think that is kind of the motivation behind um, this this tech criticism piece and the the work I did at the Tau Center in some ways. So um, that's a funny okay. funny jumping off point. <laughs> but um, uh, so I describe myself as a tech critic, okay. but uh, I usually say by critic I don't mean uh, luddite. I mean like cultural criticism, mm. and I usually say you know like a film critic thinks about society and history and then it gets into a longer discussion about what tech criticism is so it's I don't have a very short uh easy answer and I think that's largely because people have a negative association with tech criticism or or that it suggests something negative and so that's actually where all this work started out from is that I was writing about technology and felt like calling myself a tech writer was not nearly um, adequate to describe the stuff that I was writing about and how I was writing about it. Um, I didn't want to associate with being like a gadget blogger. um, Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I I didn't even feel like a, a journalist really either. Um, like tech being the beat, right? Like what did Google do yesterday? That kind of thing. Um, and so I was feeling like there wasn't an adequate uh, way of describing the day-to-day work that I was doing um, in a succinct way. And then looking at tech criticism as the closest possible thing to describe myself as and being like, oh, but like, why am I so resistant to calling myself that? Well, it has to do with this kind of baggage that comes with the term, but also comes with all the examples that we have that we recognize largely as as tech criticism. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because that was going to be my next question was kind of how you define technology criticism, because I, I mean, I'm somebody who reads a lot about technology and I still kind of fall into the trap of thinking of tech criticism as like gadget reviews, you know, or like, mm-hmm. you know, here's the new laptop from company X and here's why it's better than the one before. Uh, and so I like, I like that, how you said, kind of comparing it to cultural criticism. How do you think about that in relation sure, to I, technology? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's become more clear in the in recent years that you know technology is a part of culture that it is the kind of underlying 
substrate of what makes culture possible and that it's so not um, separated or removed from from culture even if we are talking about the gadgets themselves you know we're talking about these things that we carry around on our bodies and in our pockets and in our purses and you know there's a kind of cultural element of understanding what our relationship with these devices is um, but then there's also just the like um, more ingrained uh, cultural element, which is like all culture is happening online in some form, right? Um, whether it's mediated on Facebook and the Facebook feed or, um, you know, something completely novel and different because of the way that people are using Snapchat filters or, um, you know, Instagram. And so I think it's not so hard a jump to, to, for people to kind of begin to understand the cultural elements of tech at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's still a little bit of a stretch to be able to point out, you know, there's not your typical obvious, um, equivalent to like the film critic, and we had, you know, Walt Mossberg and um, David Pogue in these, like, very well-known positions in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And for the most part, for a long time, they were about reviewing personal technology. And it right. was, as you said, like, very much in the, here's the latest new product. What's good? What's bad? Should you buy it? Right. And ultimately, the question of should you buy it or should you use it? was the kind of driving force behind those their behind their inquiry right right and i think that's kind of taken for granted now in a lot of tech writing is that you know people are using the product mm -hmm. like there's no question that people are using instagram but what's interesting is not whether you should use it but you know what kind of cultural meaning has come out of people using it or what you know features or or kind of changes occur when you start looking at the world differently and, you know, producing material in a new different way or, you know, what has the hashtag done to, uh, cultural right. meaning, for example. Um, so that gets into really different questions. And I think part of that has to do with, you know, where those questions get to be asked. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking through that in the report um, because if you think about, you know, the David Pogues and Walt Mossbergs, mm -hmm. they had, you know, a regular space and a regular column to do that reviewing work. Um, but the kind of cultural review work doesn't have a regular spot. It doesn't have, right. you know, the weekly, um, two pager in yeah. the New Yorker. Yeah, you know, it's it's I let's let's uh I was going to hold off um and talking about your your piece in Columbia Journalism Review, but let's kind of like just go right into it cuz I Sure. <laughs> I I read it, you know, a couple of weeks ago and I was like it was one of these things where it was like so great and I I like couldn't stop reading it, but I was also kind of angry because it was the thing that I wanted to write for design and I that's the I, best kind of hate read though yeah I like I like sent it to all these people I was like I could just do like a find and replace and like take out technology and put design and the whole thing would still work like I think yeah yeah it's and that's great I'm glad I'm glad uh, yes yeah, and I think you know, I think design is kind of in a similar place in culture as technology in that you can't escape it yeah. Uh, it is everywhere and it only gets interesting or relevant to talk about when it's connected to all those other things instead of, you know, the piece itself. So instead of like the laptop review or in design's case, instead of like the logo review, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually isn't that interesting unless you talk about kind of all the cultural, political, uh, you know, economic things that surround it. Right. Um, so how, what was the background or, or how did you start writing this or what, what was the, what made you kind of start thinking about that? Sure. Um, 
So it goes back to um, my time at Berkman, at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. So, it, and it actually ties back to um, your initial question, which was like, how do you introduce yourself? And so I arrived at Berkman. I'm surrounded by people who are <clears throat> definitely, you know, pretty clearly technologists or lawyers or, um, you know, social scientists. Um, they kind of had a clear, it was a very diverse um, community, which is amazing. Um, and what is part of what makes the Berkman Center such a, a great um, intellectual space. Um, but, you know, people seem to have their boxes and I was struggling to introduce myself and say, you know, I'm working on this book and I'm a tech writer and that didn't feel right to me. Um, in the process, I was working on the book with another um, uh, co-author, and we were kind of struggling to find shared language. We, we wanted to talk about the same things, talking about data and algorithms and the kind of role in, in culture and society. Um, but it became clear that talking about things like regulation um, were like almost allergy terms like he was just huh. so um kind of uh wanted to avoid those kinds of discussions and I was like where is this coming from why is talking about regulating algorithms such a like non-topic and it became clearer and clearer to me that he was just so embedded in Silicon Valley um mm. and he you know was from the west coast and was just part of a culture that's like pretty libertarian and, you know, very much about like the market regulating itself. And, you know, it became clear that like this was a political difference between us. Um, and so trying to figure out how to articulate that um, kind of difference in view in how we wanted to write about this stuff really made a stark contrast for me for the type of writing that I was valuing and wanted to emulate versus what he was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so part of that was just like this like soul searching process of articulating what it was that um, I cared about in the work that I wanted to do. And, you know, trying to look at other people who were contributing to that space. Um, as I said, emulating, you know, the kinds of contributions that those, those voices were making. And, you know, trying to like put a label on it. For, for me, it was a, a lot about saying like, I think there's this crew of people contributing to uh, a discourse that is not just about um, the latest new thing that tech can do, but is also about the kind of cultural and political and social ramifications of, you know, what we were doing with technology and who is it for and to what ends and that kind of conversation. So um, <clears throat> coming out of that, you know, the, the book fell apart. My, my relationship <laughs> with my co-author fell apart, but ultimately it was a really good thing because it was this kind of, as I said, soul searching process of like knowing what it was that I was trying to do. And then coming out of that, um, the Tau Center uh, for Digital Journalism at Columbia um, was putting out a call for um, fellows and research projects. And so I happened to be talking to Emily Bell, who is the um, director there, I believe um, is her title. And she was kind of poking around, just asking me what I was thinking about. And I was like, well, I've been, you know, thinking about this tech criticism thing. And um, it's, it was right in their wheelhouse because a lot of what they write about is the effect of technology on journalism. So like what mm. happens when Snapchat becomes a part of the like publishing process, for oh, example. Yeah. And so the flip side was like, Oh, what is journalism's role in talking about technology, especially when these two things are so deeply entwined when you're, you know, talking about, whether or not a news organization has access to their audience through Facebook and publishing on, you know, a Facebook determined mm -hmm. news article format. Right. So, um, it seemed like a pretty natural fit, even though it wasn't like their, um, their qu quite their normal, um, approach to things. So, so yeah, it was a great opportunity to kind of 
dive into what I had been sit- spending a lot of my kind of background cycles on thinking through right. um, to kind of uh, do it more, um, more uh, outright with, with some funding from the Knight Foundation and um, with an audience. So. so did you, so did you have, I'm, I'm trying to think exactly how to phrase it. Like, did you have a point of view or a thesis kind of like, thing you wanted to prove going into writing and researching it like did you have a a way that you thought technology should be written about that you were shooting towards or did you kind of start to try to figure out what that could be does that do you know what I mean sure yeah I mean I definitely had um as as you know research a good researcher might put it as you know a hypothesis yeah um and that was coming from you know, all this background reading I had been doing over the last couple of years, okay. thinking about sets of people and approaches. Um, and that certainly colored who I ended up talking to in depth, um, interviewing and things like that. So, so yeah, I definitely had, um, a concept of what I thought the problem was, where I thought, you know, trying to articulate this kind of where this negative association comes from and why it persists. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of, it was more a question of like, I think this is the thing, you know, how does it articulate? Um, how does it show up in the world? Um, and let's like try to describe it in a much more robust way. Right. Um, so. So how long, how, how long were you kind of working on it? in earnest interviews, research, writing? Um, it was about a year's worth of project. Part of that was because I was moving, moving in the process. So, um, (laughs) I was going from the U S to Singapore, which is where I'm now based. Um, and there was a little bit of just, you know, uh, starting startup costs from changing my life a lot. So, um, that, that kind of put a a little bit of a damper on keeping my momentum on the project, but, um, knowing that was going to be, um, part of the challenge was, um, was, you know, baked into, into the, the work. And I did get a chance to, you know, go back to New York and, um, the Tao center had had a, um, a, research symposium day on Silicon Valley and journalism in the fall of last year. Um, so around surrounding that, I got to go to that, but I also got to, um, cram a bunch of interviews with people, um, mostly in New York while I was there. Um, interesting. Yeah. So it was a really good opportunity to, um, I mean, obviously New York media is what it is. So there was a a high concentration of people I wanted (laughs) to grab. And it actually helps a lot in the sense that um, having a very concrete time window was a motivating factor to get people to respond to me. So that that was actually a a good uh, a good strategy for getting people to right, right. <laughs> get time FaceTime with them. So yeah, I think I, it's funny. I think I did the same thing. I spent this I spent this past summer in New York and did like a dozen interviews in like a month time you know, for this. And then it's, you know, kind of like this now where it's just Skyping the people that I can, can talk to that way. But it was like, get those New York people at once. Mm -hmm. Did you, it's a good strategy. (laughs) Did you, um, did you only, again, I don't know exactly how to phrase this question. Did you reach out to people that you thought were doing the type of writing you were interested in? Or did you, did you also kind of talk to people that maybe kind of disagreed with this direction or, you know, weren't interested in that type of criticism? Um, so I did, I tried to cover a pretty big range of people and, and largely it was like, I, I think I would identify it as a set of people who were, um, doing longer form stuff and often talking about historical context mm. or um, social context, that kind of thing. Um, in many cases, I was really interested in talking to them about what they thought about criticism, what 
like did they think of what they were doing as criticism at all oh interesting um and in many cases people you know explicitly said like no i'm a journalist like i'm a reporter oh really um, yeah so i i was very interested in kind of using those self-identifying questions to flesh out what it was that you know how people thought of the work that they were doing but actually going back to this like original question like how do you introduce yourself Mm -hmm. and um using that as a jumping off point to figure out where the kind of fractures were with uh with the problem of tech criticism um so i guess i would say i mean i didn't reach out to like um well, that's not true. I mean, I even talked to like John Herman, who had started as a gadget blogger, but had kind of evolved from there. Um, and that was actually a really rich conversation because he had a lot of perspective on, you know, how writing about technology has matured over time. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I mean, I, I wasn't going way out of my way to be like, okay, let's talk to five people from Engadget. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I was trying to get a rich, robust set of um, different types of backgrounds and different publications and that kind of thing. So. And what, what was the response to those people that you interviewed um, when you kind of told them what you were doing and what you were thinking about? I mean, I think a lot of people were excited about the project and were very willing to talk. Um, and, you know, really, it just came down to those like, well, do you think of what you're doing as criticism? Where that's where the kind of, not resistance, but just kind of like hesitation came out. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, they were very excited about like, yes, this is needed. Um you know, trying to articulate this kind of broader landscape of people contributing to a kind of critical discourse, um, whether or not they think of themselves as critics or not is, you know, useful. So, um, so yeah, it was largely really well received talking to people, like, especially when, you know, you get into the, the concrete, you know, asking people who they, who they look to, who they think of when they right. hear that term, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so I obviously read it. I sent it to a bunch of people. I, I would, you know, when I release this as a podcast episode, I'm going to encourage everybody to read it. But like at a high level, how would you kind of describe your your thesis for it? Sure. Um, so the report is broken out to a couple different pieces, one of which is to try to articulate um, why writing about technology matters at this moment. And that's to say, you know, it's more than just gadgets. Technology is everything. Um, basically, you know, there's, if you want to kind of break everything down like at some point there's some form of technology or structure involved um in most cultural objects right Mm -hmm. and so then i kind of get into why writing criticism about technology matters um and what role that has to play in trying to understand and, and um contextualize and and historicize and whatever um right this role um, I then go into talking about why technology criticism tends to have this negative association. And that refers to, you know, talking about Luddites and talking about, you know, the idea that the critic is this like, um, kind of cultural arbiter and who's, you know, just looking right. for the contrarian kind of, yeah. um, angle on things, um, you know, trying to fault or find fault in things. Um, and I look at the set of people who, um, are most well-recognized broadly as tech critics. And those people include, 
Evgeny Morozov and Sherry Turkle mm-hmm. and um, Nicholas Carr, for example. Oh, right. And I tried to flesh out exactly what it, how they were writing about technology and what, um, what about what they were doing was kind of perpetuating this negative or like um, reactive association. Mm-hmm. And so part of the, re- the project is to kind of um, articulate some of the ways that they're writing about technology. So some of it has to do with like, they're just, you know, talking about their own personal gripes about technology. They're like, you know, doing the curmudgeon thing or they're, you know, just uh, kind of providing the counter narrative to a very dominant um, Silicon Valley narrative. And in doing so are just kind of being controversial for the sake of controversy. Or, you know, they're doing the kind of um, very personal, like, bullying takedown and often sometimes misrepresenting people's um, ideas. So that's a huge uh, problem with, I think, with Evgeny Morozov's work um, in his, like, 6,000-plus word um, takedowns of people like, uh, (laughs) what was it, Tim Tim O'Reilly and um, uh, Jeff Jarvis and like Jeff Jarvis is an easy target, right? Like (laughs) it's, um, did we need that many words to explain exactly what's wrong about him? I don't know. Um, He wrote them and somebody published them. So, (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think a big part of the, the project was to outline some of those problems of this, of the approach to writing about, tech and the kind of voices that were dominating the conversation and then to try to show a set of people who are as I said not necessarily identifying as critics but are contributing to this critical discourse and then um, trying to articulate what it is that they're doing and contributing in a productive way um, to try to get at some of the things that we might want to emulate. And some of that has to do with like, okay, they're talking about, they're, they're taking certain lenses on the topic to get at a more, um, a more interesting question about technology, for example, like looking at um, reception and use and how people are actually using it on the ground, for example, which is like very anthropological yeah. approach. Or as I said, looking about, uh, the historical precedence for a technology and trying to like um, tell an intellectual um, trajectory or thread through um, behaviors that existed and kind of started with a, a, a much older technology that we completely take for granted, um, you know, like the typewriter or, you know, the fax machine or something like that. Um, and... Finally, the report um, ends up looking, and this is kind of where my personal argument comes through, which is to argue for not only technology criticism, but constructive technology criticism. Right. And by that, I mean criticism that not only describes what is going on and kind of articulates the, and provides vocabulary for kind of um, explaining these social factors, but also tries to suggest, you know, if there is a, an articulated problem, like offering some solution or offering an alternative vision or offering mm-hmm. some other framework for, for talking about it or thinking through it, that um, can give people a starting off point for changing it. And I think that that piece of it... Um, is probably the hardest piece yeah. in part because yeah. it's you know, offering an alternative is like, well, if you're going to come up with the idea, like you might as well make it. Or, um, you know, if you're right. a writer, you're not necessarily um, used to thinking through um, an alternative solution or like a design change, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's where, um, I was really interested in looking at the whole range of people and some of, some of those people are actually practitioners who are, you know, contributing in blogs or op-eds or, um, 
or academics who are also doing the same thing, um, writing for public audiences, but also trying to do something constructive, which is, you know, this is the problem. Here's how policy would change this, or here's how um, this tweak in the interface would have an impact. So so that's the gist of this uh, report. I don't know. Did I, (laughs) was that a succinct enough, uh, yeah. Overview. No, yeah, it was perfect. It actually like reminded me of some things that you had in there that I had completely forgotten about. Um, you know, it's interesting too. Cause I you... had to remind myself, actually. I like pulled up my, uh, my <laughs> slides, <laughs> I will admit. I mean, it's, I'm che- cheating a little bit. It's, it's, it's funny too, though, because, you know, you reference people that I, like it sounds stupid to even say in retrospect, but like I had never even considered as, technology critics or people writing about technology and as soon as I saw their name and I was I was like oh yeah you're right I was like like uh um like Virginia Heffernan for example for some Mm, reason mm -hmm. never kind of really considered her as someone who writes about technology I think was she the one who had that quote about uh you know if she said that she was a technology critic she got more pieces than a culture critic Yes, she did. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Virginia is a huge um, personal inspiration for me um, for a lot of different reasons, which I can go into. Um, Oh, yeah. My uh, next question was going to be, who are the people that you look to? So this is perfect. Yeah. Um, So she, I was a huge fan of hers when I was graduating undergraduate um, from Harvard in like 2007. And she had a column in the New York magazine, New York times magazine weekend, um, magazine oh. called the Me- the medium. Um, or I think it was called medium before medium.com was a right. thing. Um, and it was obviously referring to, you know, the McLuhan sense mm-hmm. of the, of, of the term. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, she started as a TV critic oh, I and know yeah. And then expanded to talking about screens because, you know, in that moment, 2006, 2007, yeah. YouTube was coming right. to fruition. And you had, like, Zay Frank doing, like, really cool, interesting, weird things on the Internet with video. And right. that was, like, the moment that streaming was, like, at all possible before, you know, we didn't have connectivity to, like, support that until that moment. And so for me, I was actually super interested in that video moment on mm-hmm. the Internet. Um, and I was a English and film studies uh, major in undergrad. So I was like oh. deep, deep into that and wanted to like get a job in online video or whatever. But oh, interesting. Um, at that moment, like YouTube and Breakcove and these <clears throat> these online video platforms were really just hiring engineers like it was. Yeah. It was all about like, you know, getting the streaming to work and to work efficiently. So, um, but there was such an interesting, you know, content uh, moment happening that was like all new and different and, you know, what's possible in the format. And that's where I was really interested in, like, what does this medium itself uh, make possible? So anyway, looking at um, Virginia's work, she was turning her TV work into screens and like the internet. That's so and then interesting. it just kind of evolved from there. And so me reading this as an undergrad, I was like, yes, somebody is like speaking my language. She has a PhD in English. And, um, you know, we were just, I, I, I knew reading her in the New York times, I was like, she gets what I care about. She's yeah. kind of articulating this in the way that I want to. And it was mostly just, um, I think kind of uh, touching on this existential, like I'm an un- I'm an undergrad, I'm about to graduate, and like, how do I explain what I care about to people in a way that like I can get a job? Um, right, yeah. And so, so it was good for me to be able to say like that, like this is what she's uh-huh. doing, this is what she cares about. Obviously, didn't you know start off there at all, um, but it was motivating for me to see her column and get to read it. And, and um, she was really just touching on the, on the things that I cared about. And she continues 
um, to evolve some of these kind of cultural questions. And so her most recent book, um, Magic and Loss, I was, I have been anticipating for years because she has been working on it for a while. Um, and I ended up actually reviewing that in the Columbia Journalism Review as well, because oh, it, um, yeah, it, um, it was actually kind of, uh, a rehearsal for some of the material in the, um, oh, in this technology criticism report, but, um, yeah, it's, it's worth checking out, I guess. Um, I, and, uh, Magic and Loss was my first introduction to her work, actually, and then I kind of like mm-hmm. worked my way back. Um, mm-hmm. And so now, kind of hearing that, a lot of this, a lot of dots that I had not connected now suddenly make sense. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah. Having been a fan of her work, the book, uh, I, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that article um, yeah. because you know there are bits and pieces of it coming through as, you know, anyone who's writing with a long career would, you know, those pieces right. come, come through. So, um, yeah, so I was, um, super happy because she also was on, I, I managed to get her for the panel, um, that I ran at the Tau Center for, um, uh, sharing the report. So it was the, um, launch of the report and she, along with John Herman, um, who is currently a New York Times um, David Carr fellow. Oh, okay. And um, Rose Eveleth, who is a freelance writer um, and podcaster. Yeah, she's another one that I I never connected as a technology writer in my head for some reason until until your piece. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, which is weird, actually, now that I think about that. But yeah, I'm a big fan of her work. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I'm, it was a very cool opportunity to talk to a bunch of my favorite writers, (laughs) honestly, um, to be able to do this, this report. And so I'm, I imagine you are getting to do much of the same, um, your research. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say, like, that's basically exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So, yeah, (laughs) that's great. Did, did. You know, now that it's kind of done and in the world, has it changed how you thought about the work that you do? Um, I mean, it's only been a couple months. Um, I it's funny in this post-Trump moment. Um, mm-hmm. I I think like everyone did. I had this like taking a step back moment to be like, am I doing the most effective thing I can possibly do? Like, am I like it's talking about technology at all, like frivolous or is just not the real issue. Um, and then I took a second and I was like, well, let me think through like using my tech criticism, like constructive tech criticism lens. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're all, we're talking about fake news on Facebook Mm -hmm. and what relationship Facebook or what responsibility Facebook has in supporting it. We're talking about, um, like what role the news feed itself has in creating echo chambers and, and filter bubbles amongst like, you know, we forgot half of America was racist. Um, it, we're talking about, you know, what is Silicon Valley's role and like yeah. Peter Thiel being, you know, one of the biggest monetary contributors to Trump's campaign and, you know, what role might he have in the, um, you know, as a libertarian in this new cabinet and whatever administration, we're also talking about like fucking California talking about secession and like those (laughs) Silicon Valley, like that's largely where that kind of discussion is coming from. So, you know, I, to me, tech criticism, especially such that it talks about ideology and politics and, Mm -hmm. you know, the social of the people who are building and deploying and responsible for the technology we live with, you know, is more salient and important, I think, than ever. So it was was actually a good moment to be like, oh, yeah, no, I am doing the right thing. Like, these are the questions. These are the important ways of thinking about it. And it's also 
as important as ever to be constructive about it because like that is, you can't just like point at it and call it a problem. Like that's not going to change anything, especially when you're talking about like, well, we can complain all we want about Facebook and false news and, you know, their first action will be, okay, we're going to block fake news websites from using our ad servers. And it's like, no, that's not the problem, guys. (laughs) Like, that is opposite of the problem. Like, you are hosting all this material on Facebook. Like, nobody's going to these websites. That's not, like, where their funding is coming. Like, these are not viral because you're hosting ads on their their actual page. It's because you're hosting the content on Facebook itself. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to keep, you know, drawing comparisons between, you know, kind of how, what, when you talk about technology and I'm thinking about it design, but it's like so interesting of actually how interconnected they are because I had that exact same thought this week and it's like, you know, why, like, who cares talking about design criticism now? And then, realizing that's like yeah well design criticism that talks about you know the kerning of letter forms and a logo yeah that doesn't matter but these are all design problems also distribution audience um yeah these fake news sites that you know where design once was used to like differentiate is now being used to kind of trick and subvert and you know these are the things that i think designers should be talking about and kind of the type of criticism that i'm proposing and it's the exact same thing that you're thinking about with technology it's actually really interesting of how connected those are right well it's like how do you in the space of the news feed how much space do you have to give people the like information that they would need to know that they're looking at a reputable source or like what what would you possibly do like is it a check mark that's you know verified like the twitter account thing or is it you know like how do you articulate that in so little space and in so little without without any context right like when everything is equal in the news feed right yeah no it's absolutely a design design question ultimately but it's all i mean it's also this kind of policy question which is like what is facebook's role in doing any of this Mm -hmm whether it's, you know, regulating and just like shutting down that content or if it's letting it thrive and and live on the site, but, you know, putting some kind of wrapper around it or whatever. Um, And that becomes this like much more structural question about what it should be and how it should and how it should be and what responsibility they have as a platform. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's something that I really liked that you kind of articulated really well in your piece. And I've I've written about this in in regards to design is that technology is not neutral and just like design Mm -hmm. cannot be neutral. Uh, You know, it's always a product of the culture or the creator or, you know, the place where it was created. And I think like now more than ever is where that becomes obvious and needs to be talked about, needs to be kind of worked through of how we deal with that and, fix that, you know, the best that we can. Yeah. I always think about it in terms of, and I, I keep, um, I, I think this becomes a much easier way of describing or, or reacting to the neutrality argument. And that is to say, you know, especially when we're talking about algorithms or something mm-hmm. like people mm-hmm. say like, Oh, they're, they're neutral. They're just kind of like getting out there and, and, and filtering or, or doing their job. But the way I think about it is that we're always optimizing towards something. Mm. And that is a choice. What you're optimizing towards is a choice. And therefore, it's political or social or, you know, embedded in some kind of to what end, right? And usually that has to do with, you know, in the context of, of something like Facebook, to keep going on that example is, Facebook is designing things towards getting you to spend more time on Facebook. Right. And obviously that's towards selling, you know, more ads, like they get more revenue by you spending more time. But, you know, it's also about just 
keeping users right. around. Right. And so any design decision is ultimately going towards that goal, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's a great... And I think a lot of people don't really parse it down to that level yeah. of motivation. Yeah, that's a great... I mean, that's so... Yeah, it's such a great way to think about it. It's ex You're exactly right. I hadn't thought about it that clearly and succinctly like that. Um, I have just a couple more questions just to to start to wrap it up, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Um, some of these are, are kind of quick. Some of these might actually be a little bit bigger, but I was I wanted to know how you think about audience, um, mm. like your audience, like who you're writing for, but then also the technology criticism that you wrote about who are the people that that's for or the, you know, the, the people that would be receiving that. Mm -hmm. um, so I can answer the second question first, because that's okay. a little bit easier. Um, so part of the, I mean, the Tau Center is part of the Columbia Journalism School. Um, so that was pretty clearly first and foremost towards a journalist audience. Oh, okay. Whether that was, uh, um, and, and that's also because it's funded by the Knight Foundation, um, which is, you know, investing in journalism. Right. So very much, you know, a media, um, either, you know, practicing folks in media or students. Um, and so a lot of it was a little bit, um, you know, I included uh, uh, an annotated syllabus. And yeah, obviously I'm not that. teaching that as a class yet, but it was very much like a didactic uh, choice to, to say like, here's, if you wanted to get into it, here's all the material, like go for it. So, but I think I was also writing it in a way, hopefully that it was reson that it would possibly resonate with people in policy and academia, um, you know, social scientists, um, mm -hmm. who tend to write about this stuff, like basically anyone who, wants to write publicly about technology. Um, and so that's a much wider audience, I think, than just the kind of traditional media. And that's kind of the point of the, um, the piece itself, which is to say, look at all these different people who are contributing to this public conversation about tech. Yeah. Um, so, and that hopefully also like includes, um, people, you know, engineers too. Um, I don't have a huge indication that it's like reached quite that far yet. Although um, Craig Newmark of Craigslist tweeted it. So oh, wow. I don't know, maybe he just, you know, posted wow. the link. So, um, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to tell if that's um, getting anywhere, but um, interesting. Yeah. I, I hope that, it can also do the work of bridging um, bridging that conversation by giving people shared kind of touch points. Mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the big problems is that tech criticism as, as it exists right now is very like talking at the tech audience rather than talking with. Um, and then for my audience I think it's it really depends on what the piece is and where I'm publishing so that's obviously first and foremost like am I gonna write this for the Atlantic or am I gonna you know try to write it for motherboard or mm -hmm. or something more policy oriented um, so I always kind of I'm thinking about that um, but I mean even I look at a piece I wrote a while ago um, that was about data doppelgangers and oh, the idea yeah. that our personal data is kind of acting on our behalf and, and out mm -hmm. there in the world as, you know, our double, right? Yeah. Um, and that was largely a piece about Facebook and the sense of like seeing ads about us that are ostensibly personalized towards us, but um, are either offensive because, you know, they don't match up with our sense of self. Right. And, um, you know, that was kind of just, I initially wrote that just thinking like, I want to articulate this problem. It's not just creepiness. It's about the uncanny. 
Um, and I thought, you know, describing it in a more articulate way was going to, you know, help people think through this creepy feeling. Mm-hmm. And I was mostly targeting that towards like, just people who tend to have that creepy feeling and like want to have a better way of describing it. Right. And like, you know, I think we need to understand this feeling. Right. Um, but the best part about that and the best feedback I got from that piece was, um, somebody from Facebook reaching out and saying like, I sent this around to my team. Like you're, Mm. you're really hitting a nerve about like a problem that we think we have. And, um, you know, we're trying to, to solve it. Um, and so that was really, I think probably one of the first, first examples I had of like, oh, this, if, if you approach the problem in a, both in a constructive way, but also knowing that like, um, you're not trying to blame anyone. Right. That it is coming from a space of you know, people are just doing the best they can, like giving people the benefit of the doubt in in terms of like what they can and can't do in the context of, you know, building something that, you know, there can be something productive if you're not like attacking people. Um, so that was a, a pretty good example of yeah. you know, where I thought this constructive work could go. And that, that was a long time ago, long before I started all this, um, all this kind of meta work on, on right. criticism. Right. So, uh, my, my last question for you is just, you know, kind of looking forward a little bit, what are the, um, like the issues or the topics or the things that you would like to see critics writing about or even that you want to write about like what are those things that you know should kind of have the focus right now Mm -hmm. yeah i asked that question uh, um of my my interviewees uh, Mm. a bunch too and a couple people rightly said that they would love to see more reporting um on the kind of follow the money story and whether that's like VC money or just, um, you know, business models, that kind of thing. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that's criticism, I think that falls into the, you know, investigative journalism is a form of criticism, in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. as yeah. a way of, you know, accountability reporting and that kind of thing. Um, I think the big hard question is doing more work on algorithms and machine learning and, and, um, technology that is basically, uh, designed such that you cannot articulate what exactly it's doing either because of IP reasons or because Mm -hmm. we literally cannot understand how it's working because it's machine learning. And it's just like beyond the engineer's ability to articulate what is happening. So I think that's a huge area for, uh, more robust discussion about like how do we even think about this thing that like we can't explain (laughs) roughly that's interesting I've never thought of that yeah yeah um I think that's the big huge question for tech going forward and that starts to leak into you know artificial intelligence and all that um in some ways but Mm -hmm. um so I think that'll be a huge area um and will be a, a hard um a hard project yeah. um, but we need all the good thinkers and and thoughtful people we can for that um, personally I am really excited to do some work on um, smart cities and smart nations so now uh, that I'm here yeah. in Singapore um, this is part of the national policy and and like national technology plan is um, this vi- large vision for a smart nation. And obviously this is a city state. It's an Island city. Um, there's a lot in Singapore that makes it an interesting technology environment because they have a lot of funding to work on projects and like can turn around and just decide that they're going to do a pilot with, um, you know, smart, uh, self-driving buses on some, 
college campus, you know, in a closed environment type thing, but like they're already doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of interesting work about like putting sensors in homes for the elderly in public housing uh, so that they can address this um, human resource problem, which is we don't have enough people to care for our elderly population. Uh, So how do we best put our resources to those uh, elderly people? And the way to do that, they've decided, is to put sensors in the floors so that you can figure out who has fallen. Oh, wow. Um, Which is totally fascinating. And, you know, the the very real argument, um, real practical argument for, you know, outfitting smart homes, right? Um, that easily skirts the kind of big brother, um, vision. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting environment here. Um, I'm super interested in tracing the kind of, um, intellectual history of where this vision of smart cities comes from. And my instinct is that it comes, you know, very much from, um, marketing from tech companies from, you know, five years ago. Um, and the fact that it kind of traces directly into a national policy a few years later is really fascinating to me. Um, there's also a lot of really interesting stuff about, um, public private partnerships here in Singapore with tech companies. And they're basically, I mean, Singapore has a long history of essentially outsourcing, um, uh, expertise. Um, and oftentimes that means like the first draft of some policy is written by a tech company and that's like (laughs) really fascinating and problematic. So, um, there's a lot of stories here to be told and, um, it's just a matter of digging in and getting access. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about doing more of that. And I think it has, you know, obviously it's an interesting story here, but I think it has a whole lot of implications for a bigger, bigger picture of how yeah. tech exists in the world. So yeah, totally. I'm yeah. I, I think that actually sounds really interesting. I can't wait to kind of see, see what you do with that. Great. Um, and thank you. I mean, thank <laughs> I, have, you s- I have one reader at least. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's funny again, again, I'm like kind of drawing these connections between technology and design, but like, smart cities and you know at kind of like the big scale down to the internet of things i mm-hmm. i'm finding myself kind of writing about and thinking about more from a design perspective and so i like it's interesting to kind of hear you thinking about it from a technology policy perspective um so i you are for sure i will i will read it when it comes out thanks yeah, well, on, on the Internet of Things, I, one of the things that I've been wanting to write for a while and have been thinking through, and this is very much a design question, is, you know, when we have all these interfaces that don't have a lot of information presented mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. They're, they're interfaces that we speak to, yeah. um, what de- like what the defaults are yeah. in how the system responds matters so much in terms of foreclosing choice and foreclosing kind of siloed environments or, you know, what, what is possible on the platform when, you know, you basically have to respond in exactly the right way um, to one, you know, audible command. So it's not, it's the interface difference um, really changes the kind of (laughs) politics of, of default choice. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny that you, you bring that up. I also teach a uh, user experience and interface class mm. to undergrad design students here. Um, and mm. that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Just, you know, teaching this past semester is seeing more and more of these interfaces going almost invisible. Um, yeah. Where historically what the visual designer did, there's actually not place for that anymore. And so how does that change the role of the designer? And it's, that's a, a big uh, question that, that I've been thinking about a lot. Well, it sounds like maybe we should get together and write that piece. Yeah, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm game for that. <laughs> Great. 
Um, thank you so much uh, for talking with me. I thought that this was so interesting and so great. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. I'm glad. I'm thankful that you reached out. And this sounds like a great project. Um, I'm eager to listen to more of these conversations because, as you say, I think this, you know, whether we're talking about it as technology or design, it's it's structures. It's, you know, right. the built environment in, in the most literal sense of, you know, human-shaped experience. So. Yeah, exactly. This episode was recorded on November 17th, 2016. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.